It's a great pleasure to be here with all of you today to explore together non-duality and uh, to liberate ourselves from constricting dualisms of all kinds. I'd like to begin with one, maybe two poems. First is by Wallace Stevens, and it's called Tea at the Palace of Hoon. Not less because in purple I descended the western day through what you call the loneliest air, not less was I myself. What was the ointment sprinkled on my beard? What were the hymns that buzzed beside my ears? What was the sea whose tide swept through me there? Out of my mind the golden ointment rained, and my ears made the blowing hymns they heard. I was myself the compass of that sea. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself and there I found myself more truly and more strange. Here's another one a little bit a little bit longer. Can you all hear me okay? Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply, I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond. And I'm also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing 
and loving. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I'm the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Some of you may know that poem by Thich Nhat Hanh. Dogen Zenji was a um, the founder, really, of Soto Zen. Went to China and studied with the Chinese masters. And his magnum opus is called the Shobogenzo, the koan, the Shobogenzo, the I, treasury wisdom. And within the Shobogenzo, there's a passage called the Genjo koan, or the koan of everyday life. Uh, And I just want to read three lines from that because It'll be kind of like a compass of my talk. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas, by the 10,000 things. There were so many things in Ajahn Amaro's presentation that I wanted to respond to, but I think um, I'll leave that for, for a bit later. There's so much resonance in, in his uh, wonderful voice. Uh, with which he gives voice to the Theravadan teachings and, and Zen practice. And I found this as well in a, in a meeting uh, I had with him and Ajahn Sumedho uh, a number of years ago up in Spirit Rock. It was actually where we first met. Um, it's a wonderful spirit. And uh, I think it, it also comes from Ajahn Chah uh, and, and his spirit, which, um, which could be very vigorous, not, not unlike the old Zen worthies. In Zen, the unconditioned is expressed directly within the condition. I want to just say that one more time. There is 
no place that the unconditioned is not expressed. They are not two separate realms. Hakuin Zenji was a Zen master in the 18th century. And I love, I love his words from, uh, from a poem called The Song of Zazen that he wrote. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water, crying out in thirst. Like a child of a wealthy home, wandering among the poor. What we are seeking, what we are searching for, is already full and complete right in the moments of our everyday life. What we conceive of as delusion is itself not simply um, grist for the mill of practice. That certainly it is. That's to say uh, our afflictive emotions, conflictual situations, um, when things don't go well. Usually we don't see that that realm of experience should be welcomed. But in Zen, it's not just that these are springboards for realization. If our mind uh, is awake, they actually represent realization itself. So in Zen, it's less a matter of balancing suchness and emptiness, or even necessarily bringing them into contact with one another, which is another way to think about it. We can take the realm of delusion, the realm of dukkha, the realm of samsara, and have experiences, growing, deepening experiences of, uh, of peace and understanding and compassion, and then bring the two so that they touch one another. But in Zen, uh, if we could put words to the point, um, there's always danger in that, but we would say that it's a matter of interpenetration. So form and emptiness interpenetrate. The deathless and our lives interpenetrate, intersect. They intersect in each moment that we laugh or weep or stand up or sit down or go to the toilet or prepare food. Experiencing this intersection as a living fact is the emancipatory factor in Zen. Experiencing that this is so Hakuin continues in the song of Zazen. Going and coming, we are never astray. I've always liked that line. 
Going and coming, of course, is the world of samsara, the world of being born and dying, arriving here and leaving at the end of the day. It's the world of time. Going and coming, we are never astray. How is that? How is that? That the very fleeting world of coming and going, getting a job, losing a job, is itself never astray. And there's another line I like. With thought that is no thought, singing and dancing are the voice of the Tao. We know about the Tao. The undescribable, the immeasurable. How is it that singing and dancing are the voice, the expression of the Tao? The Zen teacher urges her or his student to not simply understand the emptiness of all dualities, but to actually find a way to express it, find a way to show it. In the tradition uh, that, uh, that I practice in, which is a kind of integration between Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen. I don't know how much you know about this, and I certainly don't want to get into a, a lecture about the different kinds of Zen, but um, simply put, Soto Zen uh, teaches the path of gradual awakening, that with deep faith and deep practice, we, we find... Uh, enlightenment right directly in the moments of our daily living. Obscurations, clouds part of their own with devoted practice over many years. Rinzai Zen uh, actually encourages us to break through our mistaken understandings uh, and have a direct experience of that which is beyond uh, sticking to form and emptiness, coming and going, gain and loss, enlightened and deluded, uh, practice and life, all the other dualities which flummox us. So um, there's actually another duality that evolves around this. That's sudden awakening and gradual awakening. Um, and if, if you like, we can talk about that, but I, I don't care to right now. Um, in our lineage, uh, a Soto priest many years ago uh, went to study with a Rinzai master and uh, got transmission from that teacher and came back into the Soto fold and began a lineage called the Sanbo Kyodan lineage, of, of which I'm a part of, the Fellowship of the Three Treasures. So um, I'm very interested in... Uh, <coughs> encouraging a direct experience of this intersection between the unconditioned and the conditioned worlds. For example, there were so many times during Ajahn Amaro's talk where I wanted to add one more sentence to it. Uh, Many, many times, and let's just pick one of them. Uh, When there's no going out, or when there's no 
coming in. Um, which, by the way, uh, a Christian mystic says very nicely, my Strackhart calls it chasing out through the five senses. Sort of a wonderful turn of phrase. When there's no going out, when there's no coming in, uh, when in Zen, we call that actually staying at home. My question then is, what becomes evident? What becomes evident? How do you express that? In Zen, it's not enough to have an internal understanding, even necessarily a knowing. The Zen teacher will nudge, sometimes strongly, sometimes depending on her personality or his personality, the student to actually bring forth within the realm of form, within the realm of words, within the realm of action, that experience of the intersection of the formless and the form. Let me give you an example of it. You probably heard lots of these Zen stories, but here's, here's one that I like. Um, and I'm probably going to butcher it because without the text in front of me, I, I get everything mixed up. But I think the point is the same. Uh, student comes to the master and says, uh, what is Buddha? Which is another way of saying, what is the nature of mind? Who am I? Uh, what is uh, the essential nature of, of reality? Uh, and the teacher said, cypress tree in the garden. There's a very famous, very famous uh, dialogue. What in the world could he mean by cypress tree in the garden? So, in a later commentary, the story goes on and the student says, I didn't ask about outside objects. I don't ask about outside objects. And the master responds, I don't speak of outside objects. What a wonderful presentation, seems to me. Both, both. But let's just take the second line. I don't speak of outside objects. We can intuit the state of mind, the state of being of the teacher who says, cypress tree in the garden. And then I don't speak of outside objects. So outside objects have fallen away for him. The distinction between inside and outside has fallen away. Now, when I was uh, in college, we were taught how important it was to develop all of these distinctions, inside and outside, now and then, a sense of time, a sense of myself, a sense of body, continuity and coherence, self and other, and, and all kinds of things. And those are very, very important to learn. There's one kind of graphic example about the distinction between inside and outside that's, that's pretty important. Uh, the, the professor said, uh, why don't you take some saliva in your mouth and just wish it around in your, within your mouth and then swallow it? So everybody did that. And he said, now, what if you took that saliva and you, and you spit it into a glass and then you looked at it? What would be your reaction? And everyone went, ugh. <laughs> They certainly wouldn't do that in a social setting. So inside and outside 
you know, in, in what could be called a conventional level are, are pretty important things to, uh, to know the difference between. And just with a spatial difference of the location of saliva, we have a completely different reaction. And of course, it engenders a whole different social dynamic, shall we say, if we, if we uh, offer this to somebody, for example. It's just disgusting. But, but this teacher, Chao Chu, was speaking from, uh, in a very free way, shall we say. I hate even to say from a very free place or a transcendent place. I, I, I've seen too many people who've transcended and, and treat one another really, really poorly. Um, so uh, I, I think transcendence is, is a very important experience and yet it needs to be really anchored to, um, uh, to, our, uh, to our conduct with one another in, in ways that the idea of prajna, dhyana, and shila those three, wisdom, attention, and conduct, uh, they too, ideally, should, should um, interpenetrate. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, we can be very, very strong in the prajna side, or we can be very, very strong in the dhyana side, or we can be very good people, but not really have a clue about uh, the nature of reality. Uh, how these interpenetrate is... Very, very interesting to me. I think it takes some work uh, to work with them. But just returning to this dialogue, I don't speak of outside objects. What happens when um, there's no clinging to inside and outside? What happens when there's no clinging either to the becoming side or the not becoming side? I think us Buddhists have, have more of a tendency to cling to the not becoming side than to the becoming side. We're, we're good Buddhists. We're, we're aware of that obstacle, the, the becoming side. But I think uh, we tend then to develop an attachment to the not becoming side. Um, and then that becomes co-opted by the an ego attachment, shall we say. Uh, but freedom is something on a different register. A different register. And again, I want to point out the, the Zen path. The Zen path involves initially becoming aware, becoming aware of our bodily sensations, of how we construct our experience, developing concentration. And then from concentration, it moves into absorption. And in absorption, is where the forgetting of the self can happen. It's an important step. There's a kind of falling away of the self. Uh, I think one of the real benefits of the Theravadan tradition is that it doesn't just fall away without some real understanding of how it keeps getting constellated and keeps causing suffering. In Zen, we tend to go up the mountain sort of more in a soldiering kind of way, and we sort of forget the path along the way. But there's some real benefit at, at the same time. So the self that, that falls away or is forgotten, you know, what, what self is that? It's certainly not the self that um, has curly hair or blue pants or is a man or a woman. 
that's just part of who we are. It's the self that's continually preoccupied. Preoccupied with maintaining its self-esteem or uh, wondering how I'm coming across with somebody or uh, preoccupied with fears or clinging or afflictive emotions and uh, uh, very much uh, full of, uh, shall we say, self-centeredness. The major drama in life is, is me. So through absorption, one of my teachers, Yamada Kohen Roshi, used to say, uh, Zen is the forgetting the self in the act of uniting with something. So that's why in, in activity in the Zen temple, it's a wonderful practice. You know, if we're chopping, chopping vegetables or we're weeding, the idea is to engage with the ordinary practice, the ordinary events of daily life. And in that process, without any sort of waiting for a, a reward, to surrender the fruits of that practice. There, there's no sense of I'm doing this in order to attain anything. I'm, so Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say, I'm doing the dishes just to do the dishes. And those of us who've done the dishes just to do the dishes, we know that it can be very blissful. Really, really can. We can sweep the streets in the same way. How, we, how can we find the jewel of liberation within our daily experience? Within the ordinary, there is the extraordinary within Zen Buddhism. And by extraordinary, I don't mean um, something that uh, inflates me. I mean that transcendent dimension. We could call it the universal dimension. How can I find the ultimate dimension or the universal dimension, that which is not captured by time and space and all the dualities? How can I find that universal dimension right within and as my personal, relational, day-to-day life? That's the invitation. The invitation of Zen practice. So, Absorption. Absorption leads to a falling away. Falling away of self. And in the falling away of self, we discover vast spaciousness. Vast spaciousness. Um, The emperor of China asked Bodhidharma, one of the famous Zen teachers uh, who had legendary figure, I think, who had trekked all the way from India to China bringing, bringing Buddhism. Zen is the marriage of, uh, of Indian Mahayana Buddhism with Taoism in China, and to, to some degree Confucianism as well. So the, the emperor of China, a very powerful man, asked Bodhidharma, uh, what's the first principle of Buddhism? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness. Nothing holy. (coughs) Nothing we can call holy. So when everything falls away, 
we enter this vast, undifferentiated realm. We call it equality. Where, for some period of time, I don't experience myself as a man. I don't experience you as a woman. We're all completely equal. Now, this isn't the undifferentiatedness of a, of a psychotic break. It's, it's, it's actually very blissful. Very, very blissful. Um, <clears throat> there's a little vignette that, that highlights the next step that Zen invites us into. Uh, I was practicing in, in the Zen temple in Hawaii in 1972. Um, and I was, I believe, cursed uh, as uh, either Ajahn Amaro or, or one of you were mentioning by, um, by having some insights early on in my <coughs> practice. Looking back, I think it was a curse. Um, but in any case, there I was up in my treehouse dormitory. Um, and everyone was meditating down below. And I was just sort of sitting there. I was just blissed out. There was a knock on the door. And I, I sort of was stunned and I said, please come in. And it was my teacher. And he said, Joe, what's happening? And I said, all phenomena are, all things are flashing into the phenomenal world. And he said, yeah, and we miss you downstairs. <laughs> so Zen is very down to earth. And there's a great um, premium put on the Sangha, put on our interbeing, not, not just in a cosmic way, with all beings, with the pirate, with the girl, with uh, the the famished child with the arms merchant with the cypress tree not just uh, that but interbeing with our comrades who we're sitting with and so uh, that was a great great uh, shock for me to see how my own experience such as it was the teeny little insight that I had had been co-opted into this sort of self-enjoyment now, there's nothing with enjoying your insights and understandings. They can be quite emancipatory. But uh, Zen is always nudging us toward how do you express this realization in the circumstances of your daily life? How, how is it expressed? How is that which you can't find words for expressed in words? This is a great challenge. And actually, um, it, it takes us, it, it, it challenges us to wrestle with this state of samadhi or state of oneness or even a, a sense of, um, uh, and again, I, I don't know, it would have to play out quite specifically with a particular teacher-student couple, but uh, I could imagine that if I came to my, any of my teachers, the, the Japanese Zen teachers, uh, saying that I myself has fallen away and uh, I, I understand, you know, my teacher would say, uh, what do you understand? Please show me. And I would say, but it, it can't be shown. It can't be conceived of. It's not of time and space. 
and he would take his bell and ring it. Ring-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, which is a signal to go back to my cushion. <laughs> this has happened. This has happened quite a few times. And I've rang the bell myself with students quite a few times. So out of this experience of vast equality and even a sense of the knowingness, we are nudged into going further, to breaking through uh, even the formless, even the understanding, the intuitive understanding of the falling away of form and emptiness. And at that point, and I'm talking just classically by the formula now, and you've probably, again, read these stories. Any phenomena can then awaken you. You've heard Zen stories where maybe it's been the sound of a stone on bamboo or um, a sneeze or seeing a flower fall down. At that point, when we're ripe, we're like a ripe fruit something shifts on its axis. And uh, it can be more or less powerful. Uh, For many of us, myself included, it's not all that powerful. It's it's something important. It's an important experience uh, for Yamada Kohen Roshi, uh, whose experience is written up in Three Pillars of Zen as the Japanese businessman. It it was just earth-shattering. he was reading a book of, of Dogen and, uh, and he was reading a line which he had read many times before and, and it went like this. Um, the great way is none other than the mountains, the rivers, and the great earth, the moon, the sun, and the stars. And when he read this, he was riding back on the train. Uh, He was a banker, actually, Uh, back home. Uh, Suddenly, everything just crumbled. And I think too much can be made of of Zen experiences of Kensho. Again, because I've seen too many people, very dear friends, actually, who have passed all the earmarks and then have really treated people very, very poorly. Uh, the, these, these stories are legends, so uh, I don't want to glorify this, but I do want to highlight something of, of the Zen path as I've come to know it. So if we were to put it into words, w- w- what did he understand? Well, he understood, just put it in a formula, it's not the living experience, that um, when his small self fell away, he was vast. He was completely at one with the mountains, the rivers, the great earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And I would say he was at one with his own birth and death and his laughing and his weeping. This was his direct experience. In the Zen path, when we've broken through the trappings of the self in this way, we find ourselves simultaneously, and this is where it gets tricky, simultaneously at one with all beings and also quite comfortable with the distinctions between one another. 
That's to say, things are quite vivid. It's not just a salad. It's not just a sort of Buddhist salad where, where we're all one. It's one flavor, that's to say, or one color, everything mixed together. Because we know when we mix all the colors together, what do we get? Okay. Brown or gray or something <laughs> kind of dull. How is it? How is it that each of us in our own ways, that the bird and the, and the clouds and the rocks and the good experiences and the bad experiences, how is it that each of them reveal the unconditioned, each in their own way, distinctively. And I bring this up because this is a challenge the Western mind has, a, has trouble wrapping its, wrapping its mind around. We call it equality and differentiation in, in Zen, the universal and the particular. I think for most of us, either things are all different or they're all the same. And we can say, well, we're all the same because we have hearts that are beating. We're human beings. We share certain aspirations, certain fears. Uh, we're part of, uh, of the human race. And those are the ways that we're the same. And here are the ways that we're different. You're a woman. I'm a man. He's tall. She's short. She's tall. He's short. Uh, he's ill. She's not. Um, and usually those two registers are kept separate. But in the experience, and Ajahn Amro spoke beautifully about it, about suchness, there's no conflict between these two dimensions, none whatsoever. Each being is already awakened and presents their awakening in their own distinctive way. And here's where we enter the realm of the personal. I think it's very important that we enter the realm of the personal. Because the next phase in Zen practice is called personalizing one's realization. How do I express and embody the realization that I'm simultaneously unique and at one with all beings, how do I express this realization in my daily living? How do I personalize that? What are the ramifications in my heart and mind when I realize that? There's another phrase in Zen that I, that I like. And again, I know you'll understand that we, we're not getting attached to the words, but we're playing with the words to evoke some Experience. True self is no self. So that in a paradoxical way, only when the self falls away and we're not caught up in it, can our particular iteration of the Dharma come forth. And that's one of the precepts is, and I'm using very colloquial terms, is don't bogart the Dharma. Don't spare the Dharma assets. This is something we need to share with one another. The, the world really needs it. The world is, is really suffering. How do we bring forth the best of our prajna, dhyana, and shila to benefit the world? And we can't do it by skipping over the personal. We, we, we just cannot do it. But the personal 
doesn't mean the self who is just fixated on uh, avoiding pain and seeking its own fulfillment. That self has to fall away and find a bigger container. Find itself as the many beings in intimacy with all the many beings. And then it's motivated by a different fuel. It's motivated at that point by, uh, by compassion. Because it sees very clearly. And again, this is an ideal vision. It has to be worked out with a particular student because all the pieces don't often potentiate one another. But it's, it's uh, expressed only through the particular iteration of this being. That's the only way that I can share the Dharma. And my Dharma is a little bit different than Ajahn Amro's Dharma. Vive la différence. And yours will be too. Uh, From morning to evening, you will respond to changing circumstances. And if you're not attached to those circumstances, and you have a sense of yourself, shall we say, I should probably have my mouth washed out for saying that, but if you're you're foundational, I don't, don't, don't know what to call it, if your understanding is, is, is like Sharon Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World. If your heart is as wide as the world, then you'll be able to respond pretty freely without agendas to the suffering as it arises around you. And this is an ideal in Zen. And I know it is as well in Theravadan Buddhism and all Buddhism that we um, find a kind of freedom in responsiveness How do we bring forth our understanding so that it helps beings? And this may vary from being to being. It may vary from the time of day with the same being. That's to say, sometimes someone will come to see me during a retreat in the morning, Doksan. We, we meet with students two or three times a day. And, uh, and I'll say something, and then they'll come to me in the evening, Doksan, and I'll say something different. They'll say, hold a second, you said something... In the morning you said this, in the evening you said that. Well, the circumstances have changed, haven't they? Yeah. So how can we become completely free to respond to circumstances? In one moment it might be saying, no, that's not okay. Say to a child or to someone who's uh, treating someone uh, unmercifully. In another setting it may be to to go up and give someone a hug. One of the models, one of the archetypal images in Zen is that of uh, Kuan Yin, or the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Uh, The Bodhisattva of Compassion is sometimes um, represented as having a thousand hands and arms. What are those hands and arms for? Those hands and arms are to be able to respond to each circumstance as conditions dictate, completely freely, trusting one's own motivation to be of benefit, trusting, and therefore being able to be spontaneous. Spontaneity, a little bit of spontaneity is a dangerous thing. So it takes takes some practice to trust one's own spontaneous reactions. And in the, in, 
actually not just in the beginning of practice, but all throughout practice, one has to really check one's motivation. Uh, great teaching, I think, of the Theravadan tradition and Tibetan tradition. Not emphasized that much in Zen, although we do make our vows to save all beings. But we're not really instructed in how to tap into our motivation. And I think that's a very important thing to know. And then eventually it's a very important thing to forget, just to trust. Because if, if I'm aware that I'm helping you, isn't that a dualistic situation? And if I make you aware that I'm helping you, you're not going to feel very good. There's an educator who, who's dead now, but his name's John Holt, for those of you who know something about early childhood. Uh, and he wrote a book once where he had a chapter entitled, The Helping Hand Strikes Again. <laughs> so, um, my mother is my great teacher on this. She, she's turning 90 in January. And, and uh, just, just last night I was up the house with my sister and my niece and uh, she said she was going to take my niece to, um, to uh, Sausalito. And uh, they were going to take the bus down to the ferry building and then the ferry over to Sausalito. I said, oh, that's going to be a wonderful day. But, you know, you're going to get really tired schlepping around. Why don't you take a cab? She's got these vouchers for the cabs. And it's very inexpensive to take a cab. But she hates to do it. She's an old proletariat and, you know, she likes to suffer. <laughs> so I said, well, why don't you take a cab? It'll be, be fun. She says, I don't need to take a cab. I'm going to take a cab when I come back, maybe, you know, and she's sort of bristling at, at this helpfulness. <coughs> and, um, and I thought it was pretty freely offered. I mean, I wasn't really attached to it, but I just get a, like a whack, you know. Uh, leave me alone, you know. I'm, I'm doing all right as I am. And so I get to check my motivation, you know. If, if I get really mad, which sometimes I do, I... You know, maybe my motivation wasn't that pure after all. You know, maybe uh, it's not just like water off a duck's back. It's, I'm, I'm attached to being helpful to her. She's my mother. I want it to be easier for her. So, there's another story about, um, about Kuan Yin, a wonderful koan. Um, how is it that that Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, the great Bodhisattva of compassion, saves all those beings. And the teacher responds, it's like reaching, it's like in the middle of sleep, reaching for your pillow. Mm -hmm. You know how it is, it's just, oh, where's my pillow? Oh, there it is. Just as natural as that. No fuss about it whatsoever. Maybe I'll close with um, another Zen poem or two and then maybe another Wallace Stevens poem. There's a uh, text called the Song of uh, Awakening to the Way or the Song of Enlightenment. And uh, the first three lines I find really lovely. 
There is the leisurely one, walking the Tao, beyond philosophy, not avoiding fantasy, not seeking truth. For our purposes, I mean, this may strike you in different ways, which is good. What strikes me is walking the Tao. Just because it can't be known, just because it can't be spoken, it can't be seen, tasted, touched, (coughs) or cognized, doesn't mean it can't be lived. In fact, we must live the Dharma. And the only way to bring forth the living Dharma is for the self to fall away. Then we can bring forth our particular iteration of the Dharma, our refraction of the Dharma, which is completely universal. Bring it forth appropriately, in accord with circumstances. The author of the Shodoka, the song of realizing the way, goes on to wax poetic about this jewel of liberation. This jewel of no price can never be used up, though they spend it freely to help people they meet. I tried to teach my son this when he was about five and we were at a family gathering and my newborn niece was getting all the attention and he was sitting on my lap and and I just have always showered him with love. I mean, he doesn't have any questions about that. But but at this gathering, Uh, my niece, being newborn, was getting a fair amount of attention. And he turned to me and he said, why is Maria getting all the attention? (laughs) And I don't know why, I just said this Zenish thing, which showed that I needed to evolve a little bit more as a Zen practitioner, especially to a five-year-old. But I couldn't resist. You know, I have to plant a seed. You know how these seeds are in Buddhism? You know, get right down to the, the seed bed and then one day it will sprout. I said, you know, love is the only thing in the world that the more you give, the more there is. It never runs out. And he just looked at me with this expression. He was like, come on, Dad. But I couldn't resist. Back to the cushion. Huh? Ding, back to the cushion. I'm always going back to the cushion. Life is always dinging us, thank God. Bringing us out to... I used to have a t-shirt that said, um, even though I'm a Buddhist, I like this t-shirt. It said, uh, God isn't finished with me yet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, here's a couple of other expressions of non-duality. Because I think in in poetry and in spontaneous interaction, we can get a a flavor for this. Um, I have entered the deep mountains to silence and beauty. In a profound valley beneath high cliffs, I sit under the old pine trees. Zazen in my rustic cottage is peaceful, lonely, and truly comfortable. Now, we can understand this, is that this, uh, this profound valley between high cliffs, the Zen teacher would say, where is that? He'd want us to bring forth that profound valley in the midst of samsara. It's not just about retreating, you know, in a spatial sense. Here's another one. 
The moon shines on the river. The wind blows through the pines. Whose providence is this long, beautiful evening? The Buddha nature jewel of wisdom and compassion is impressed on the ground of my mind. And my robe is the dew, the fog, the cloud, and the mist. Now, the robe um, is often thought of as a very special thing. This is a representation of the Buddha's robe, this, this okesa here. And when we get transmission from our teacher, we get a fancy one of these. So there's this idea that there's an unbroken transmission of the Dharma from teacher to student. In fact, that's, that's a myth, but that's, it's a nice myth. It's not so unbroken. But um, where is that robe? Where is that holy shroud? My robe is the dew, the fog, the cloud, and the mist. Just like Yamadaroshi, the great way is none other than the mountains, the river, and the great earth. So in Zen, it's not, that, it's not just that we're saying, well, Zen, because it reached fruition to some degree in Japan, and the Japanese, like nature, brings nature into the teachings. That, that's not what this is about. This is about our funda- fundamental interbeing with all beings which we can only experience once the small self has fallen away and then which we have to continually practice to personalize through all the dings and rings and curveballs that life will throw us. So here again, just to sort of lay out the Zen path a little bit, um, Oh, yeah, here it is. Just in terms of the topography of it, of course, it's not a linear thing at all. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Any of these steps can happen at any time. But remember the first three lines, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas. And it continues. To be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas is to free one's body and mind and those of others. No trace of enlightenment remains. This is quintessentially Zen ideal of Jizo. In the 10th oxerting picture, I don't know if you know the oxerting picture, the, the final picture shows a big fat Buddha entering the marketplace with the with a bag of goodies on his hands, uh, on, over his back, and uh, a little bit like Saint Nick, you know, uh, Buddhist Saint Nick, and he gives them out to everybody as he meets them. And he, he sort of folds into everyday life. You, you, you couldn't recognize him. He just looks like a good old guy, maybe a good old boy. Uh, this idea of going unnoticed in the world, no trace of enlightenment. In Zen, we call it the stink of enlightenment. So that if the Zen teacher sees that in the room, boy, uh, you know, really hold their nose. (laughs) This traceless enlightenment is continued forever. That's the last line of the couplet. This traceless 
awakening, which can't be smelled, it's got no stink to it, continues forever in the sense that it can always be deepened, it can always be refined. We can always forget the self again and again and again and open ourselves to the vast um, set of connections. Maybe I'll just close with a poem by uh, Wallace Stevens again. Called The Snowman. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind in the sound of a few leaves which is the sound of the land full of that same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is.